0: Paul starts our text this morning with the words, for this reason I bow my knees. While not unheard of, this was not the typical posture of prayer for the Jews. Usually, Jews stood when they prayed. That was the cultural practice. There are a few instances of bowing knees typically reserved for the most important, the most Ardent of prayers. For example, 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple, we read these words When Solomon had finished praying the entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. Uh, this was, I would suggest, a fairly significant event, the completion of the temple. God was going to come down, fill the temple. His special presence was going to be there. Solomon knelt in prayer. Roll the clock forward in Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra had heard about the unfaithfulness of the Jews left behind at the captivity, and we read these words, But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God." I want to suggest, and I'm sure there have been times you've experienced it, that egregious sin leads to kneeling in prayer. Acts chapter 9, a woman named Dorcas died. Luke tells us that she was a woman who was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. charity. Understandably, the people were distraught. They sent for Peter. Peter. When he arrived, it became rather obvious to him that they expected him to do something about her death. Imagine being called to the city morgue. Now do something. He asked for everyone to leave the room, knelt down and prayed. If you were expected to raise someone from the dead, I imagine you might kneel as well. Acts chapter 20, Paul was saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Prophet Agabus told him he's, he's going to be bound. He was, he, was, he was indeed arrested, eventually sent to Rome and changed from where he wrote the Ephesian church. But as he was saying goodbye, knowing what is coming, they together knelt in prayer. Luke chapter 22, Jesus led his disciples to a garden named Gethsemane, the time for His crucifixion had come. And we read that Jesus knelt in prayer. This was a fairly significant event. So, kneeling in prayer was not unheard of, but it was typically reserved for the most significant, most important times. You see, kneeling signifies submission, uh, humility, respect, signifies great need. And so here's my question for you this morning. What is it that causes you, that has caused you or causes you to bow your knees before the Father? I, I suspect, for example, that when you ask the blessing at the dinner table, you know, when you say grace, most of you stay seated. I, I suspect most of you don't stand Most of you have never experienced it. Most of you don't fall to your knees, at least at Bojangles. What is it that you are most thankful for, most sorry about, something that you want or need so badly, something that you want to see changed, something that you want for something else? What is it that will drive you to your knees? Or what is it? that drove Paul to his knees in Ephesians chapter 3. He's just finished almost three chapters of proclaiming the gospel, specifically our great need and God's great remedy. He listed for us many spiritual blessings in Christ. I reviewed those last week, won't take the time to do it today. In summary, he, let me remind you that when we were dead in trespasses and sins because of His rich mercy and great love for us, God made us alive in Christ. And we went on to see that He's creating a new humanity made up of people um, from all over. Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. He's building us into a living temple in which the Spirit, in which God lives by His Spirit. This is overwhelming truth. And so Paul started chapter 3 with the words, for this reason. Because of all of this, everything that God has done for us, I, I bow my knees before the Father to pray. We, we know He took a little digression, lasted until verse 13. He returns to that prayer in Ephesians three fourteen, And we're going to see specifically what drove Him to His knees to pray. Now listen, to pray for you. Look at it with me, Ephesians 3, verses 14 and following. Say this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. This is why I'm on my knees. This is what I'm asking for that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, this is what I'm asking that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length. And the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And here's what I'm asking that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That those are amazing requests. So, to him who is able to do it, to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or even think, according to the power that works within us, to him. Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> so what is it that drove Paul to his knees? I could ask it this way. What For what did Paul specifically pray for us that, that made him get down, f- perhaps face down, and, and ask? What is it that drives you to your knees? See, I want to suggest this morning, that sometimes we don't get what we ask for, not, not because what we are asking for causes us, not because we're not on our knees, but because what we ask for is so trivial. Or, or we pray so selfishly. J- James says we pray, we don't receive because we, we're only asking for things to consume our, on our own pleasures, our own lusts. We also seem to forget what Jesus said, ask for anything in my name, and you will receive it. We think that's carte blanche. It's not. You see, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray according to His will and His purposes for my life. And, and so just because we pray, Lord, give me Alexis in Jesus' name, doesn't mean we're going to get it. Doesn't mean just because just we pray, Lord, help me win the lottery in Jesus' name, doesn't mean we'll win it. doesn't mean just because we pray lord give me this job i'm on my knees doesn't mean we'll we'll get it doesn't mean when we pray lord heal me from this disease in jesus name doesn't mean that we'll always get it even if we fall to our knees you see as we have before us this morning a, a prayer that is much more spiritual in scope. It's going to blow you away. Paul actually asked for things that are much greater than winning the lottery. Much greater than getting a new job, a new house, a healthy bank account. That is actually even much greater than physical healing. If you look at this prayer very closely, which we're going to do, It's almost ludicrous, it's audacious, it's daring, it's bold, it's crazy. What is it that he asks for? Well, it forms our outline. We're going to see Paul's prayer is for us is to be strengthened, to be filled with Christ, to know the love of Christ, and to be filled with the fullness of God. John Stott suggests that each one of those requests are like an ascending staircase, and each one becomes more and more audacious. And, and it's going to take Paul's praise or his doxology. You see, he, he, he knows that he asks boldly, confidently, crazily for God's richest blessing, and he knows that God is the only one who can answer this prayer. Look at it with me. See, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest this morning that your prayers maybe the reason that your prayers are not answered is not because they are too big it's because they are too small and because they focus many of our prayers focus on the trivial things of life i'm going to suggest this morning that you expand your prayers to be some really really big ones uh, knowing that they are god's will and that he is big enough to grant these requests The question this morning for you is, are you big enough to ask? Let me also tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, as we do every once in a while, we're going to close our time together in prayer. I will ask the elders, their wives who are with them to come um, at at the end to to stand here at the front, and and we are going to pray for your specific needs. Now listen, you're going to be thinking about this because we want to pray with you. We want to be a praying church. It might be that you need a new job. It might be that you need a place to live. It might be that you need some relief from financial pressure. It might need that you need physical healing. We want to pray about those things, but we are also going to pray that God will fill you with Him. See, this is an incredibly bold, audacious prayer. Paul starts by reminding us who he's talking to, the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's already told us that we actually have access to the Father. We can come with bold confidence through faith into the very throne room of God to seek what he, we need. He now models that for us. I bow my knees to the Father. But listen, not just any father. This is the Father who has created all things and from whom every living thing gets their being, gets their significance, gets their essence. That's the idea here. You see, to name someone demonstrated power, authority, dominion over them. That's why God told Adam, I want you to name the animals. That was the beginning of his exercising dominion over God's creation. Paul here says, I go to the Father, the one who has the one who's named everything, the one who has power over every family in heaven. Every grouping in heaven is the idea. Angels, fallen or not, doesn't matter. Every authority, every power, every dominion, every ruler, and every family on earth. Doesn't matter whether it's a nuclear family. Doesn't matter whether it's a family of a, of a nation. It doesn't matter whether it's a people group. It just does not matter who you are. This Father has power and authority. Every living being owes their existence and significance to God. He created them. That's the Father we're going to. Now notice. I boldly and confidently go and bow my knees. Paul's reminding us just because we have access to the God of the universe does not mean we we, we pop in flippantly and arrogantly. We come in grace and love and humility, bowing our knees to ask. And what does Paul ask for? Four things, uh, almost in ascending order. Unbelievable. First, I pray that God would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. I know most of you chucked out about halfway through that sentence because that sounds like a bunch of Christian lingo. We have to, we have to break it down. He's not bowing his knee notice to ask for, for a new camel, for, for a souped-up camel. For, for, for a new tent with a uh, two-camel garage or with f- four bedrooms and running indoor water. He earnestly, ardently, boldly, and confidently asks that God would grant us according to the riches of His glory. Stop right there. He asks us. I mean, He asks God that God would meet some needs for us according to the riches of His glory. I want you to think about it with me for a minute. Years ago, when our children were little, Tana and I decided that we needed to have a budget for giving gifts. If we didn't have a budget, we would go crazy. As much as we might like to give really expensive gifts, we did not have the money. Yeah, maybe their friends were getting the newest uh, and the, the latest game system. Maybe we couldn't afford it. Maybe they were getting a new car. How many of you have been to the Wataga High School parking lot? <laughs> couldn't afford that. So we set a budget, a, a limit to what we would spend for gifts, for birthdays, for Christmas. We still have that, by the way, in place today. No need to come. Ask for the whatever. The, the, you, know what the, you know what the budget is. Within your families, you know you have family members who can only afford a little. So you're kind of hoping for a card, maybe, maybe, maybe the iTunes card on the inside. But then you also know that some of you have some rich relatives. Typically, we call them grandparents. And, <laughs> and you know when you get a birthday card or a Christmas gift wrapped from them, when you, get a, when you get that card and it says from your grandparents, you're going, you know it, come on, you're going cha-ching. Because gifts are normally given according to the ability to give. And so here, Paul asks that the God of the universe would grant these requests according to the riches of his glory. He's he's going into the throne room. He bows his knees and says, God, I'm going to ask for some things and, and I'm asking for these things according to your wealth. Would you grant these things out of the storehouse of your great wealth? Glory is the display of God's character, His attributes. It speaks of radiance. It speaks of splendor. It speaks of brilliance. It's often associated with power. So here, I'm asking, according to your glorious, wealthy power, the inexhaustible resources of your glorious might, I ask that you would first strengthen believers in the inner man. What's that mean? Inner man is a unique term uh, that Paul uses in the New Testament. It speaks very simply of the interior of your being. It it speaks of the really you, who you really are, the center of your being, your moral center. It, it, It is not this. It's not the physical. In fact, Paul told us that the outward, the physical, is wasting away, but the inside, the inner man, is being renewed day by day. I find that incredibly interesting because how much of the time do we spend praying about this as opposed to praying about this? See, this is a prayer not for physical health and endurance, although there is nothing wrong with that, but it is a prayer for spiritual health and endurance. He says, God, would you strengthen them spiritually on the inside? He's asking that the real you be stronger. When's the last time you prayed that for you? When's the last time you prayed that for someone else? You have to know in this prayer, in this praise, Paul is closing the first half of his letter. He has spelled out the glorious riches of, of God's salvation and blessing to us. Having laid that foundation, he's going to move on in, in the next three chapters and he's going to give us some rather strenuous ethical and biblical commands In fact, notice the first word of chapter 4 is the word, therefore. Because of everything that we talked about, because of all of these spiritual blessings, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And over the next few months, we're going to talk about what that worthy walk looks like. And it's going to take the strengthening of your inner person to do it. You can't muster this up on your own. It's going to take God's Spirit strengthening the real you, giving you the spiritual fortitude you need to do chapters 4, 5, and 6. And I'm going to call us to greater walks of holiness. But it's going to take the Holy Spirit of God in you to accomplish it. it goes on in the second request. Strengthen the inner man, number one, so that, I'm asking, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That, at first glance, appears a little confusing. One of Paul's main themes throughout Ephesians 1, to 2, and 3 is that we are in Christ and He is in us. What does he mean when he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? Thought he already did. It's what I thought happened when I got saved. I thought I asked Jesus into my heart. Paul is talking about it. What Paul is talking about here is a matter of de- degree. See, the word dwell is a very specific word. It's a very strong word that speaks of taking up a permanent residence. God, my prayer is that Christ would take more and more of a permanent dwelling in your hearts, that they would have a fuller experience of Christ. Of course, we understand that the heart, much like the inner man, speaks of the center of emotions and will and being. Paul is simply asking that we grow in our understanding of and surrender to the person of Jesus Christ, that Christ take up permanent and full residence, that He live permanently, sovereignly in control of the center of my being so that He controls everything that I am and everything that I do. So I I, kind of get that. Now listen to me. You know that Christ does not always sit on the throne of your heart. You know that there are sometimes you just kick him off. And Paul is praying for you that Christ would dwell there permanently. You know that there are parts of you that you've held back, you know that there are parts of you that you've held in reserve. You know that there are parts of you that only you and God know about. And Paul is praying about that part, that Christ would capture that too. Filled up with Christ. Brings us to Paul's third request. Remember, we're ascending a staircase. He prays that we would know the love of Christ. Actually goes from the middle of verse 17 all the way to the middle of verse 19. Look at it. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which, is, which surpasses knowledge. I, I want you to hear what Paul just prayed for you. He wants you to know more deeply Christ's love for you. Being gra- rooted and grounded in love. That's not your love. That's not your love for one another. He's going to get to that. That's not what he's talking about. Being rooted and grounded in his love for you. Being planted in and built upon love. I want you to know it. I want you to experience it more deeply. You see, Paul has talked about, and frankly we have talked about quite a bit here, how that we are broken, sinful people. We were dead in trespasses and sin, but God, because of His great love, made us alive in Christ. I want you to know how much, even though you didn't deserve it, that's true, but I don't want us to dwell there. I want you to know how much Christ loves you. Some of you need to speak that truth to yourself right now. Christ loves me. I know He does. And I need to experience it more deeply. He mixes metaphors again. They say basically the same thing. Rooted is an architectural, or excuse me, an agricultural term. Grounded is an architectural term. The point is actually the same. Your roots are deep in the love of God. You are built on the foundation of God's love. You want proof God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And this is love, not that we love God. See, this isn't our love, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning side, or to be the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You are rooted, you are grounded in love. He has a great love for you. And now Paul goes on to say, my prayer is that you would be able to comprehend, that you would be able to understand, that you would be able to grasp deeply the love Christ has for you. This, I want you to understand, drove Paul to his knees. He wants you you to know how much you are loved. In fact, he says, I want you to know the the breadth and the length, the height and the depth of, of, of Christ's love. It is so immense. It is so amazing. It's not three-dimensional. It's four-dimensional. I'll just make up a fourth one. I want you to know it. Technically, Paul doesn't provide an object for what he wants us to comprehend. He he he, he kind of starts, he says, it's it's really high, it's really long, it's really deep, it, it's really wide. And then most really just kind of takes a breath and goes listen, I want you to know this, this really, this really high, long, deep, and wide. Thing I want you to I want you to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The church fathers spoke of these four dimensions that Christ has for us of, of Christ's love for us. They spoke of it this way. They said His love is broad enough to encompass all mankind. His love is, is is long enough to last for eternity. His love is deep enough to reach the lowest of sinners. Does anybody need to hear that this morning? And His love is high enough to take you, to exalt you all the way to heaven. Now, I don't know if that's what Paul had in mind, but I, I, I kind of like it. I know that I need to hear that sometimes. It reminds us of Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote before Ephesians, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced... Now listen. You need For I, put your name in there, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what lies you tell to yourself. I don't know what lies you listen to, but I want you to hear this right now. Christ loves you. He always will, and there will never be anything that will separate you from Christ's love. Notice a couple of other important things that Paul says about Christ's love for us. He says, I want you to know Christ's love, which is beyond knowing. (laughs) It it, it surpasses knowledge. Third time that Paul has used that word surpass or surpassing in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 19, he spoke of God's surpassing greatness. In chapter 2, verse 7, he spoke of God's surpassing riches of God's grace. He spoke of surpassing power. He spoke of surpassing grace. Now he speaks of surpassing love. It surpasses knowledge. I want you to know that. This is what he says to you. It's almost, it's an oxymoron. I want you to know that which is unknowable. We can never, it means that we never can fully plumb the depths or comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love. No matter how much we learn and experience of Christ's love, there will always be more to learn. In fact, many suggest that we will spend eternity grasping Christ's great love for us. Second thing I want you to notice before we move on, Paul says he wants us to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. That's interesting. You could read that. Paul wants us to comprehend uh, with the saints. That is, uh, as they comprehend, he want, as they get it, he also wants us to get um, Christ's love for us. That's not what he means. What he means is, I pray that you will comprehend the love of God together with the saints. In other words, the Christian faith is meant to be enjoyed and uh, engaged in community. We are to learn together. We are to grow together. We are to grow more deeply together in Christ's love for us. Because, you see, the isolated Christian can certainly learn something of the love of Christ, but it takes the body. It takes the church of Jesus Christ together to learn how deep and wide His love is. Think of it, how deep His love is for saints Together, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slave, freemen, young, old, black, white. It takes all of us together to get it. This is an amazing prayer. Paul actually and audaciously prays that we would be strengthened in our inner person, the real you. He asks that Christ would dwell more fully in your hearts on the throne of your hearts, so that you would grow in likeness. He prays that we would comprehend more and more the incomprehensible love of Christ. One author said, No prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. We're just on step three. We got one more to go. He's not done. He prays incredibly that we be filled up with all the fullness of God. What, what does that mean? In Colossians... Which Paul wrote about this time. He said that all the fullness of deity, uh, of God, d- dwelled in Christ. He told us in chapter one of Ephesians that the fullness of God, so big, he fills everything. Now, he actually prayed for you that, that the fullness of God would fill you. Very simply, what he means there is that we would be filled completely with God. Again, even those parts that you want to hold back to yourself, even those parts that you think nobody knows anything about, fill them, God, all the way, every crack, every crevice. Pastor Kent Hughes describes it like this. You're standing before the Pacific Ocean, got a little pint jar. You run out as a wave comes in. You fill your jar. Is the jar filled to overflowing with the Pacific Ocean? Well, yes, yes. Is the Pacific Ocean in the jar? Well, no. So also, Paul prays that God's fullness, as much as we can hold in these puny little bodies, fill us to overflowing. Later in the book, Paul's going to tell us what it means to be filled by God with His Spirit. And we'll talk about that then. Folks, these are amazing requests. These These are audacious requests. He closes this whole section then with a doxology. He breaks into spontaneous praise. And by doing so, he says, Listen to me, I want you to understand God is big enough and strong enough to answer not only these audacious requests, but whatever requests you have this morning. He is big enough to handle it. Look at the doxology. As we close, verses 20 and 21, it contains the three typical parts of a, of a doxology. The one to whom the praise is directed, the, the, the glory uh, that is directed toward him, and then the length of time that glory will be in place. In other words, it's to whom, it, 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 it's who, what, and how long. To him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we think or ask, according to the power that works within us. That's the first part. That's the to whom. To the one Paul directs his praise. He is the one who is able to do what Paul just asked through that power, That remember that surpassingly great power that is at work in us, he can do these things to him who is able not just to do what we ask, not just to do what we even think, but to do far more abundantly beyond that. You have to understand that the word far more abundantly, those three words are actually just one word in the Greek, and it's another word that Paul makes up. It's very interesting. He makes up another word. He could have used the word ab- abundantly. He could have said, God is able to do abundantly what we, uh, above what we think or ask. He didn't. He added not one, but two prefixes to that word, so it's not just abundant, it's not even more abundant, but far more abundant, it's like when your kids used you to get into a uh, discussion about how much they had or whatever. They were discussing a lot. A thousand, a million, a billion. And so then someone finally pulled out infinity. And someone then said, a thousand infinity. That's what Paul does here. It's to infinity and beyond. Listen to me. I do not know what failures you have faced in your life. I do not know the depths of sin to which you have sunk, and maybe the depths of sin you find yourself in right now. I don't know how great your trials are. I don't know what financial, relational pressures you are facing. I don't know how miserable, how alone you feel right now, but this I know. God's super amazing, infinitely abundant power is at work in you so that He can strengthen you right where you are right now. So that you can be filled with more of Christ to overflowing. Think, 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 pint jar. Is, is that hard for Him? So that you can begin to comprehend God's, Christ's incomprehensible love for you. So that you can be filled with the fullness of god these are amazing prayer requests and god is just the one to answer them for you today paul says to him to this great one be glory in the church and in christ jesus the only time in the new testament that doxology includes glory being given to god by the church that's interesting Because the universal church made up of believers in all places at all times is one of the central um, uh, uh, subjects of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because remember, we are the representatives of all things on earth being summed up in Christ. And, And so the church of Jesus Christ through Jesus is giving Him glory. We're not adding to His glory. We're simply making His glory known. Look around. And so, to God be the glory through the church, to all generations, forever and ever. Paul gets to the end, he keeps on, words are just tumbling out of his mouth. He strings words together. He could have said, uh, to, uh, be glory forever. He, that wasn't enough for him. To all generations, to everyone, forever uh, oh, and, and forever. And because there was no one there to say it, when he gets to the end, he says it himself. Amen. You see, amen is meant to be a public acclamation of the church to truth. It's the church's way of saying, yes, I like that. Yes, that is true. Yes, let that be so. You see, every once in a while people ask me, you know, this is kind of a quiet church. Is it okay to say amen in church? I want to say to you, yes, it is. Paul said it. I just read it. We can proclaim it together. Are you ready? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And the church says, amen. Let's stand for prayer.